0: From Brown Cow Studios in Gallatin Gateway, Montana, this is News Nerds, I'm Ezra Graham. You might know J. Kenji Lopez-Alt from his cookbooks, or maybe his work at Cooks Illustrated in Serious Seats, or maybe from social media where he has hundreds of thousands of followers. Well Lopez-Alt is known for his scientific approach to cooking in his books, videos, and articles. And this week, Kenji was in town, and he graciously stopped by for an interview. He's the author of two cookbooks, The Food Lab, and his newest book, The Walk, Recipes and Techniques. And he's also published a children's book called Every Night is Pizza Night. Today, we'll talk about his early days in the kitchen, his latest cookbook, and his advice for last-minute Thanksgiving woes. Happy Turkey Day. This is NewsNerds. J. Kenji Lopez-Alt is the author of two cookbooks, The Food Lab and The Walk, Recipes and Techniques, as well as his children's book, Every Night is Pizza Night. He's worked at Cooks Illustrated and Serious Eats, and contributes columns to the cooking section of the New York Times. Kenji is also a former chef at Worst Hall, a German-inspired restaurant in San Mateo, California. He's also picked up a pretty heavy following on social media where he posts cooking videos. Thanks so much for being with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me here. So you grew up in Boston. Uh, what was the food that you grew up eating?
1: Well, I grew up in New York, actually. I was, I was born in Boston. I moved to New York when I was uh, three or four years old. Um, and what was the food I grew up eating? New York food, um, so pizza, bagels, Chinese food, a lot of Chinese food. And, you know, at, at home, it was my mom would cook. I mean, we had dinner at home every day. Um, and so my mom would always cook. Um, I mean, sometimes we would take out food, but usually my mom would cook. Um, and she cooked a mix of... Sometimes Japanese food, um, so Japanese home cooking. Um, so things like Hamburg steak and uh, curry rice and things like that. Um, uh, and But she would also cook a lot of sort of American stuff out of like the New York Times or the Betty Crocker type stuff, you know.
0: You know, as, as you're talking about all this, it reminds me of... What you've done in your career now, like you have a a really good recipe for New York style pizza dough, and of course you work with the New york Times now yeah do you think the foods that you had early on influenced your career later
1: um to some degree, you know i think I didn't really start cooking until much later um until until college um as far as you know pizza and um New York Chinese food and things like that go um you know, pizza I started writing about a lot because I was um, I was working at Serious Eats and we had, um, uh, Serious Eats had acquired another blog called Slice, which was just about pizza. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and our offices were in New York, so we wrote a lot about pizza in New York. Uh, so, yeah, for several years I was kind of eating and writing about and testing recipes for pizza professionally. As far as the Chinese food goes, that was more something that I cooked at, you know, my dad cooked Chinese food maybe a, once or twice. Or every every couple months or so, once maybe once a month at home when we were growing up, uh, and, and he's not Chinese at all. But he you know he loved Chinese food, and he took us out to eat in Chinatown, in, both in New York and in, in Boston, um, frequently. So um, I definitely started loving Chinese food when I was a kid. I didn't start cooking it too much until you know until uh, like I was in college, and after that, um, when I started when, when I, I bought my first wok, I don't know in 1999 or 2000, and so that's when I really started cooking a lot of it and researching it and you know and trying to learn how to cook it properly. So you started cooking professionally in college uh-huh.
0: a, you know a time that's not really associated with good food um, <laughs> but it seems like you you didn't want to cook uh, that was not your focus you went to college for compl- something completely different.
1: Yeah it was not the plan cooking was not the plan <laughs> um, the plan was to be a scientist and then I kind of Decided that wasn't the plan anymore. After I'd spent a, I'd spent a couple summers working in a, in biology labs, um, and uh, and found it very boring. <laughs> so I decided you know I like learning about biology, but I don't want to work in a lab for for years. Um, and so after my sophomore year of college, I um, I decided to switch majors uh, from biology. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Um, so that summer, I basically just took the time took time off from working uh, in in college at least, um, from doing academic stuff to try and figure out what I wanted to do. And um, I was looking actually for a job as a a server, as a waiter at a restaurant. Um, And uh, one of the restaurants I walked into said, we have a a, a prep cook who didn't show up this morning. Um, So if you can start working right now, you can have a job as a cook, you can have a job for the summer. And so I said, okay, and then uh, that's how I started cooking. That was the first time I'd ever really you know I cooked a little bit obviously at at home and at college but but not anything definitely wasn't anything that i that I took seriously or or thought would be something I wanted to do professionally um but that was my job for the summer, and I loved it, so I kept doing it after that
0: so some people that go into the cooking industry go to culinary schools like c i a but you didn't mm-hmm. and you've had a very successful career with books and blogs and videos and you know all yeah. the projects that you've been doing. Do you think it's needed to go to culinary school to learn techniques? Uh, Is is it needed to spend all that money, or can you have a very successful career without going to culinary
1: school? You know, I think no matter what, to be successful at at at, in this career or in in many careers, you have to be you have to be extremely lucky, first of all, um, to be. Um, you know, because most people become cooks, you, uh, you, you cook a lot and, 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 you know, and eventually you, uh, unless you find another outlet or another, another means of income, you know, it's, it's rough on your body. So it's not, it's, it's something that's difficult to do um, as you get older. Um, and so, uh, you know, I was very fortunate to be able to find a way to transition from cooking into writing um, and make a career out of that. As far as going to culinary school, you know, I've worked with people both who have been to culinary school and who haven't. I would say people who have been to culinary school generally have like an early advantage in that they come into a kitchen at least knowing the language, and knowing the basics and uh, understanding things. You know, a- any kitchen you work in, you're going to have to kind of learn fresh because every chef does things a little bit differently. And so, even if you know what they taught you in culinary school, you still are going to have to learn some things fresh. But Um, But that said, at least there's a sort of base level of knowledge that you have. Um, That said, I've met a lot of people who sort of went to culinary school because it was just like a thing to do and then decided, all right, well, I have my culinary degree now. I guess I better go cook and just started cooking. Um, And so people who uh, had the knowledge but not sort of the passion, you know. Um, And on the other hand, I've met people who haven't gone to culinary school who are extremely passionate about it and wanted to learn and, and, um, you know, did all the reading they could and uh, cooked at home, and and you know, so I would say it's not necessary. I think in order to be successful, you have to be passionate, you have to be smart, in, in, in how in the sort of the, the, the um, opportunities you pursue, and you have to be lucky. Um, if you don't have the passion or the luck, um, or the or the you know the decent decision making, it's going to be difficult no matter what, um, whether you have culinary school or not. I would say.
0: So after your work in the restaurant business, you moved on to a job at Cook's Illustrated, mm-hmm. which is you know really a classic uh, resource for home cooks and American cooks. Mm-hmm. And it's known for not taking any advertising and it's really a prestigious magazine. And uh, they have a very specific way that they write their recipes. Right. They're they're very precise and they're very thorough and they tell you how recipes work. But a lot of cooking is more about individuality. You know, you change ingredients around and how the end product tastes. So did you feel boxed in when you worked at Cook's Illustrated? Uh, And did you feel like you couldn't come up with new ideas to contribute to the magazine?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Um, So certainly in one sense I felt Great working at Cooks Illustrated. In that, you know, when I was working at restaurants, if I had a question about why something worked the way it did, my options were either to just, you know, believe what I was told, which was often, which was often like, it just works. Don't ask, you know, don't ask why. Just, just do it that way, or like that's the way it is because that's how the chef wants it, Um, or go and try and find someone else who had already done similar research. Um, When I got to Cooks Illustrated, I had the uh, the opportunity to basically, you know, it was my job to. Ask these questions and then design experiments to answer them. Um, and so, in that sense, it was really freeing for me, you know, because it, it was like all these questions that I had um, built up over years of working in restaurants, I now had the opportunity and the time and the resources to um, try and answer them. You know, the part where I felt a little boxed in in particular was the writing, where, because, you know, as you mentioned, Cooks Illustrated does have a very specific um, writing style for its stories and its recipes. And it, it it has this way, you know. So to their advantage, all of the recipe writers are also the actual writers. All the recipe testers are the writers. So it's not a separate team between the kitchen staff and the editorial team. It's all. It's all the same people doing the same things. Um, but most people are hired primarily for their kitchen skills and their recipe testing skills with their writing skills sort of second. Um, knowing that, you know, there are, there is a very thorough editorial process there. And the problem with that is that whatever individually, individuality you have in the writing, um, it all kind of goes through this Cook's Illustrated sausage grinder, and it all comes out tasting just like Cook's Illustrated sausage, which is like a good sausage, well-made, but uh, it's, yeah, it doesn't have individuality. And, and you know, and, and likewise, I think that's also reflected in their recipes, in that their approach to recipe writing is um, to sort of strip individuality away, you know, because what they do is they send out recipes to a thousand people and ask people to make it, um, and usually 100 to 200 people will make it, right? And of those 100 to 200 people who make the test recipe, Unless 80 something percent of them says they would make it again, then the recipe doesn't go into the magazine. It doesn't make the cut. Um, And so what that means is that you end up with a bunch of recipes that are like real big crowd pleasers, but they also cater very specifically to the subscriber base of Cooks Illustrated, which is a sort of, you know, middle of the road, older crowd um, that maybe are not used to, uh, you know. Crazy flavors—the things that you can get these days—and um, and to their credit, you know, since I, that that was when I was working there. These days, they do a lot more—a uh, a much a much wider range of recipe styles and and types of cuisine, which is I think great. But you know, like yeah, like you said, I I, I did often feel that um, although the techniques we came away with in that magazine were great, um, uh, I did find the lack of individuality to be um, a little stifling. Um, and so, you know, when I moved to New York, I was working di- remotely as an editor at Cooks Illustrated, but then the opportunity to um, write uh, at Serious Eats came up, the food food lab, uh, the column at Serious Eats came up, and, uh, and that seemed like a much better fit for me because I basically had, yeah, carte blanche to do what I wanted. I, you know, I could I didn't have anyone telling me this is the way you, you, you have to sound, these are the types of recipes you have to do. Um, I could just write something and have it, you know, have some people look over it for copy editing stuff um, and have a team to sort of, a team of other editors to sort of bounce ideas with. But, but ultimately like the words that went out of the paper were, were mine and, and I could write what I wanted, which I thought was great. You know, it was the early days of the internet. And so um, back then in 2001 uh, was this 2008, food blogs were still a thing you know these days there's things called food blogs but they're they're not you know like these days like online publishing is is slick and has like a full editorial staff and back then it was like 11 people in a room um writing like three articles each a week right and so you spend a lot of time just writing and writing and writing and posting it and and you know, it, it, was, it was basically good practice to become a better writer because you could immediately see what was interesting to you and what was interesting to people who were reading. Um, you could find out what was easy for people to follow along and what was what was difficult. Um, and yeah. And like you said, you know, the thing what I really wanted to focus on was to show people, you know, Cook's Illustrated, um, their focus was always the recipe. And getting recipes that work that was like that's like their motto recipes that work Um, because they want anybody even someone who hasn't practiced that technique to to go and open up uh, their magazine or one of their books pick out a recipe and cook it exactly as written my goal with the food lab the column and my book um, is a little different you know my goal is more to show people that by understanding techniques and uh, and food science in a um, in a slightly deeper way um, that you can you can still follow recipes, and there are recipes that will work on Serious Eats and in my books. Um, but it allows you to be more individual, and it and it really gives you the tools you need to stray from a recipe um, or to you know like you, let's say a recipe calls for a certain type of squash, and they don't have it at the supermarket, right? It's like well, you can do this with a beet instead. You can do it with a whatever whatever other vegetable instead, you know. And so, I think if you read and absorb and practice, then you get to a point where you're able to, um, yeah, free yourself from the recipe so that you can become a more individual cook.
0: Okay, I want to talk about your new book, The Walk. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Americans, I think, are just getting uh, the the tools and. The recipes to use woks in their home kitchens, uh, and I think there's a lot of misconceptions about woks and how to mm-hmm. use them. So, can you go over some of the misconceptions and uh,
1: debunk them for us? <laughs> um, I, I would say so. The main one is that you need like a crazy hot burner to cook in a wok, um, which is not true. Um, for certain dishes, you do, you know. But I think I think that that misconception, particularly. Um, in the West, um, you know, and speaking like from my own experience, I always thought you need crazy how you cook in a walk because that's how I saw people do it in restaurants. But and most of my experience with Chinese food came from restaurants. Um, well, first of all, it was also it was also most of my experience came from you know the types of Chinese restaurants that f- first spread across the U.S., which are kind of Cantonese style restaurants, which have a lot of high heat cooking and things like beef chow fun and fried rice and things that that have that kind of smoky flavor of a really powerful grill. Um, but there are lots of other regional Chinese cuisines um, and particularly home cooking that don't require crazy high heat. You know, to me, it it, it, it the the analogy I think of is that. If you grew up only eating the only time you ever ate steak was when you went to like Peter Luger Steakhouse in in Brooklyn, right? And um and they have like this 1600 degree salamander right? That nobody at home is going to cook. You might think to yourself, if that's the only steak you'd ever experienced, you might think to yourself, all right, in order to cook steak, I need this like crazy piece of equipment. So I'm not going to try cooking steak at home, which is crazy because you can cook really great steak at home. It's just a, it's a different process uh, and a different style of cooking. So it's the same with wok cooking where you can cook on crazy hot burners, but you can definitely cook on an electric coil burner, or on an induction burner, or on a regular home gas burner. Um, you just have to change the process up a little bit from what you see in a restaurant. Um, and so uh, you know, that that's one of the things I really try and talk about in this book a lot is, first of all, sir, introducing people to dishes that don't require that crazy hot heat. Also introducing people to, to techniques that allow you to get the most out of a home burner. So in particular, cooking in smaller batches and recombining at the end. Talking about sort of the elements that do give you that sort of smoky, walk flavor if you want it, um, and how you can replicate it at home without using a restaurant burner. But I, I would say that's the biggest misconception. That, and if you want to get a little deeper into it, people who have... Um, You know, a lot of people online get obsessed with cast iron and carbon steel and properly seasoning it. And the one thing to note about a wok is that it doesn't season the way um, Western cast iron or carbon steel does. Mainly because um, with Western cooking, like you have a wide, flat cooking surface. Um, and a wide sort of burner that spreads the heat out evenly. Um, and most of the times, for most cooking things, you're going to be heating that e- evenly. Whether it's relatively low heat for if you're sautéing or sweating something, or really high heat for searing something, you're getting that entire surface to heat up uh, basically evenly. You don't want to see like big hot and cold spots on it. Um, and because it heats up evenly, it also um, expands and contracts evenly. Whereas with a wok, you're trying to concentrate all the heat at the bottom, and, and it gets progressively cooler as it goes up the sides. Uh, and, you know, part of the stir frying process, re- you know, that that's sort of essential to the stir frying process. So what that means is that the bottom gets really, really hot. The edges don't qu- get quite as hot. And so you have this uh, thermal expansion of the metal that's uneven across the pan. Um, and so the layer of seasoning that you build up in a Western skillet or a you know, cast iron skillet um, is a layer of polymers that build up one on top of each other. Those don't stick to a wok because the metal expands and contracts. And if you, um, it's kind of like thinking like, I don't know if you have like a, if you have like a plastic sled and you let some water freeze in it. Right. And then you come outside and you flex the sled, that water is going to crack and for the ice is going to crack and fall off. Um, and, and in the same, in the same sense, um, a polymer seasoning on a walk is going to kind of crack and fall off if you try and get that thick coating up. So that's the main one is that seasoning in a walk, you don't really have to worry about building up thick layers. In fact, you know, a walk will be as nonstick, like the second time you use it as it is the fiftieth time you use it, which is not the case with cast iron or carbon steel.
0: So you talk a lot about the ingredients that you use in wok cooking and mm-hmm. uh, in some areas, including here in Bozeman, uh, I, I just, you know, you can't get there yeah. and it's not as accessible. So is there a good online resource that you use for uh, sourcing ingredients?
1: Certainly. I mean, you know, you can go to, like, the big places like Amazon will, will sell most of those ingredients, things like that. Um, if you want really good quality, specifically Chinese ingredients, um, well, in the back of the book, there's a whole section of resources for for ingredients from various parts of the world. Um, in particular, the, the book calls for a lot of Chinese and particularly Sichuan ingredients, um, and uh, I, te- I tend to buy those from malamarket.com, which has a, a good selection of the best, or Fly, fly by Jing also has... Um, a, a decent selection of some of the sort of best stuff you can get. So before even looking at your book, like before this
0: interview, I tried something called tteokbokki, which is in the book, um, and I loved it. Oh, cool! And I think it should be way more widely thought of. But uh, when was the first time that you saw this dish, and why did you decide to in- include
1: it in the book? Tteokbokki. Uh, so the first time I had that was in college when I had a I had a Korean girlfriend. Uh, and we used to go to Korean restaurants in in um, Alston, and that yeah that's that I think that was probably the first place I had that. And there, um, the first time I had it there was the sort of soupier version. Um, so it's like uh, it's a very so the tteokbokki d- 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 um, is a it's a Korean dish. Um, it's rice cakes, kind of cylindrical rice cakes, glutinous rice cakes that are cooked in a um, a gochujang flavored broth, um, and so it's kind of like spicy and and chewy, uh, spicy and sweet and chewy. Um, and it's, it's like kind of street food, you know, super comforting, but, uh, that, that was the first time I had it. And that was that, that was the sort of brothier version. Um, and then a few years after that, I had it several different ways in Korea. That's where I had the, um, I I had it the sort of more dry style, um, from a street vendor who had, you know, with the drier style, you use less liquid, and then um, you essentially cook the tteokbokki until the sauce breaks and turns kind of oily, and then they fry fry and get a little bit crispy on the outside, and the, the gochujang, the fermented chili sauce, um, kind of darkens and crusts up on the outside, also. Um, but yeah, both of them, I think, are great ways to have it. Tteokbokki is kind
0: of hard to explain, but basically, it's just uh, rice flour, glutinous rice flour, yeah, water, and uh, I think a little bit of oil. I think they could have oil in them. I'm not I'm not sure. I don't I don't think they always do, but yeah. And salt. That's so salt. I tried yeah. making them this summer. Just oh fresh? You, oh wow. Yeah, okay. because yeah. I didn't know of any place to get them here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just followed a recipe from the New York Times. So I made the rice cakes and you basically just steam them. And it's a good dish for vegetarians too, because you can have meat on the side and just add it later. Anyway, I love it.
1: Yeah. It's also got like a nice satisfying, chewy had, texture.
0: Um, So there's another recipe I want to talk to you about from your book, and it's the Thai style omelet. So it's different from what Americans think of as an omelet because it's very crispy and you almost deep fry it in the wok. So is this a, is this a street food? Like, where would you find this dish?
1: It is, but you also at home. Um, so at home, or uh, yeah, you definitely you would find a lot of you. You find people cooking that on the street. Um, so yeah, I think I talked about sort of the spectrum of omelets, and if you look, if you think of like a French omelet, which is um, essentially no color on the outside um, and is like kind of custardy and almost. Uh, well they call it bava is like uh, uh, slightly runny on the inside um, and you you cook it really fast um, with no color versus a sort of diner style american omelet which has some amount of browning on the outside um, and, and sort of a, a firmer curd. Um, the Thai omelets kind of on the furthest extreme of that spectrum where you, you essentially, um, I mean, some people will com- just completely deep fry it. You can shallow fry it, but a lot of people just deep fry it, and you get, you get a wok full or, or, or a nonstick skillet full of very hot oil, and then you drizzle the eggs in. Um, and you can season the eggs. Like, you can put ground pork in there. You can season it with fish sauce. You can put chopped herbs, whatever you want in there. Um, but essentially, you're drizzling beaten eggs uh, into the oil, and they immediately kind of, like, puff and then uh and you flip it over once and and then you drain it and serve it with with rice and um and fish sauce and chilies and it's it's delicious yeah it's it's very crispy and uh it's obviously more caloric than well i guess it depends it's probably not more caloric than like a french omelet that's also stuffed with butter but there's not an insignificant amount of amount of oil that comes along with the eggs you were a co-owner at Wurstal
0: which is a german inspired uh, restaurant in San Mateo, California, but you left your uh, role there. Why did you decide to leave your role
1: at Worst Hall? A few reasons. So first of all, it, it became much a much bigger part of my life than I had intended it to when I first became a partner there. Um, mainly it was, you know, we wanted to make a sort of small, not small, but like a, a casual family-friendly restaurant um, that people kind of like Dropping it out, very you know, very casual, and no, and and then you know, then when I, I got involved in the project, and then people started writing about it, um, and uh, and so there's all this hype about it, and so we felt this kind of obligation, which in retrospect we shouldn't have, but we felt this obligation to do kind of, more creative stuff, you know, and so it became a restaurant that people would like go on dates to and they and there still had some of the, you know, there's still always very family friendly, but it just became a very different restaurant from what we had planned initially. Um, And then when the pandemic hit, we shut down operations initially for the first several months um, and we focused just on we we kept uh, some of the kitchen staff just to make food for hospitals, first responders and community centers and stuff like that. Um, But we sort of saw that as an opportunity to refocus the restaurant in the way that we had initially planned you know because now people were going to have a very different idea of what restaurants in general we didn't really know what was happening with restaurants period nobody did you know in in march of 2020 uh but then we decided then you know let's let's completely cut back the menu do the the plan we had initially which was just to keep it a very simple Simple menu of good stuff, house-made sausages. We know, we'll still keep the burger and the and the Korean fried chicken that people like. Um, and uh, but we'll cut, you know, we'll cut most of the fork and knife dishes. Um, and we'll try and really stick to this plan of keeping it simple. And uh, and so you know, I help, I kind of helped them get on that road. And then um, uh, the opportunity came up for my family to move to Seattle, um, which we had been planning on doing for for a while without any sort of specific date in mind. But during the pandemic, it actually seemed like the right time for us because my wife was working remotely, the restaurant was transitioning. And so, uh, yeah, so we moved. And when we moved, um, that's that's when I basically uh, uh, completely left my role at the restaurant. You know, I'm obviously still keep in touch with everybody there and made sure that it was in good hands. Uh, but the re- restaurant made, went, went through that transition. And uh, I think uh, the shift has been really successful for Everybody there, both, you know, both within the restaurant and also the community in San Mateo. Um, people seem to really uh, enjoy having that casualness there. Um, and it's, it's, it's really nice that the restaurant is sort of um, succeeding on its own merits and, and not because of my involvement or anything like that. Like, it's cool to see that the team there is really doing such a good job um, and really focusing on what community and, and the families around there are looking for. When you were
0: part of the restaurant, did you think a lot about the work environment and how you treated employees?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, that, that was sort of, my, you know, one of my main focuses as a, as a partner there was to, um, in particular, look at the back of the house situation um, and make, you know, and, and sort of to make sure that um, the way our kitchen was run was different from, I don't know, a lot of kitchens that I've worked in in the past, um, which, you know, restaurant culture tends to be very... High pressure and, and kind of macho and um, you know just generally toxic and not very good for people's mental health and so you know we and we did a number of things to to address the issues um, I think one of the most successful things we did was to have a um, a no a no yelling a no cursing uh, and a no public uh, dressing down policy so if somebody made a mistake like in a typical restaurant you might see a chef going yell at them, or if it's an open kitchen, you might see them go lean over them and intensely whisper in their ear uh, to scare them, you know, scare them straight, which is something that we avoided. So our policy was basically like, if somebody made a mistake, they, they know they made a mistake, yeah. wait until after service. then. You know, then, do a debrief and talk about what happened and and why it happened, and what they might be able to do in the future to uh, avoid that problem. Um, we also you know we also did a few basic things um, in the kitchen to try and make it more friendly for um, women to work there, um in particular because of the sort of physiological difference in in size. Um and so we had like shelf shelf placement and counter heights and and we always had like step ladders within reach so people could reach higher shelves and stuff because um speaking with, Women-run kitchens uh, and, and other cooks I've worked with over the years, I find that those physiological differences can actually be something that um, are a hindrance that don't really get addressed that much, um, just that you know, women on average tend to be shorter, and, and, kitch- and kitchens are designed for the size and shape of the average man and not the average woman. Um, so we tried to address those issues as well.
0: Were all those thoughts based on your experience working in kitchens where you didn't feel comfortable?
1: Well, it was partly that. It was also, um, particularly the 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 stuff that I wanted to do to make it more women friendly was reaching out to other women leaders in the industry and and talking about um, uh, what issues needed to be addressed in kitchens. So um, no, so so part of it, yeah. I mean, I don't I don't want to take credit for every idea. Yeah, part partly part of it was stuff that I I learned over the years, but a lot of it was just yeah talking with other people in the industry.
0: Okay, so I want to end today by talking about Thanksgiving. By the Mm -hmm. time this is out. It'll basically be Thanksgiving. Okay. So, I want to know what you're doing for Thanksgiving first, and then I'm going to ask you about some last-minute dishes that you think would be <laughs> good, but um, would not be too stressful for for people preparing things last minute. Yeah. So
1: So, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? <laughs> well, I'm here in Bozeman. I got here yesterday. Um, my sister lives in Bozeman, um, so we're um, we're going to Big Sky where we rented a house and so we'll probably do some skiing and some fishing, uh, if we can. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, both my, uh, my other sister from Colorado, she and her uh, fiance are coming and my parents are both coming in and my kids are both here. Um, and what are we doing? We're roasting a turkey, spash cocked. We're roasting. We haven't gone shopping yet. So we're, we decided today what we're doing. I think we're doing mashed potatoes, stuffing Brussels sprouts, a salad like a kale and roasted squash salad and a turkey pretty all pretty standard stuff
0: okay do you have any last minute ideas for people uh
1: my yeah just just relax <laughs> i mean if, yeah i don't I, you know i don't think the food is what makes or breaks a successful thanksgiving anyway so you know just go with what you've already planned and relax and spend some time with your family or whoever you're, whoever you're with and try not to stress out too much in the kitchen. And if your turkey burns, then, you know, there's probably still plenty of other food to eat. So <laughs> don't worry about it too much.
0: Well, thanks so much for talking to me. It's been really,
1: really fun. Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: interview with cookbook author and chef j kenji lopez alt thanks so much for listening we hope that you have a great thanksgiving and rest of your week and thanks again to j kenji for stopping by it was so fun thanks so much News Nerds is produced and hosted by me. We're on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com where you can catch up with episodes that you missed, subscribe to our newsletter, play our daily mini-crosswords, and contact us. Find News Nerds on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. We're also on community radio station KGVM every other week at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time. They're at kgvm.org or 95.9 FM on your radio. Consider supporting them by going to kgvm.org support dash kgvm. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next week.